fourth chapter of John's Gospel, and we'll commence our reading there at the first verse. Beloved, once more, hear the inerrant, the infallible word of the living God. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, uh, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And he must needs go through Samaria. Then he cometh to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well. And it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink. Thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water, springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us this morning. We find the Savior in this first portion of John 4, a wearied exile from Judea. That's how we left him last Lord's Day morning, and we find him here in Samaria, part of that land allotted to the northern tribes. And we find him in discourse with a woman, not only among outcasts, but an outcast among outcasts. And what you find in this text, friends, that though ours is a wearied Christ in John 4, spurned by his own countrymen, hunted and harried like a vagabond. And though he confronts one of the most contemptible of creatures in Samaria, we find that this text is riven through with offers of grace. Certainly, as we take up our meditations this morning, all of those themes must be pressed upon us. 
As we continue in our dialogue between Christ and this woman, you notice that in verse 10, after the Samaritan calls forth to to the attention, the the animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans, Christ responds by by reminding her of something, really indicating that, that she doesn't really know him. He says, if thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith unto thee these things, you would have asked and responded quite differently. What's striking is in the original, the words there, if thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that saith unto thee, are is actually not two things that are being referred to, but one. And so you could translate that those two clauses really this. Thus, if thou knewest the gift of God, who is the one that saith unto thee, give me to drink. Christ is referring to himself here as the gift of God. It is the gift of God that has asked the Samaritan woman to give him water. It is the gift of God who is now wearied from his journey from Judea. It's a staggering, it's a staggering text, even just for that. But what you recognize immediately here is that in this passage you find Christ both explaining to the woman who he is, because she doesn't know him, and also detailing for her what he has to offer. He does so through metaphor, but he does so so very patiently. He does so drawing the woman, as it were, really out of a place of darkness and obscurity to see he who is light itself, the gift of God, He draws this woman away from thinking, ultimately, about carnal things, to think about the highest and most greatest of God's blessings to men. The living water that's in view here, that he offers, is of course the spiritual graces that come only through the Lord Jesus Christ. The well that he refers to is himself, though the woman neither knows the gift of God at this point, or what he offers. He uses this language of satisfaction, this quenching of thirst, in a context that's so suggestive, does he not? As he speaks about these spiritual benefits, he speaks about them in the most savory of ways, to demonstrate that these things that Christ has to offer truly quenches the thirst of weary souls. And so, friend, what this text teaches us as we hold all of those things together is that Christ offers sinners spiritual satisfaction. The metaphors that he deploys, the context in which the offer is given, all of these things show us that Christ indeed offers sinners spiritual satisfaction. And as we take up these verses this morning, I want us to consider really just three things. I want us to consider the contents of this offer It's several consequence. And then finally, I also want us to consider the character of the offer that Christ tenders. And so we take up verse 10, the contents of the offer itself. He says to the woman of Samaria, he says, he, that is himself, would have given thee living water. Now, the words living water, they're certainly not new to this text. Uh, Translated quite literally, this is simply another way of describing a spring or a fountain. This is a way of describing animate or flowing water. 
For example, if you were to turn back to Genesis 26, you'll find that in Gerar, Isaac's servants digged in the valley and found there a well of springing water. It's the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek word in our text this morning. In other words, Isaac and his servants, they they dug into the ground, and as they dug, they, they found water that sprung up of itself, a kind of living water. In the law, you perhaps remember that whenever one was to be ceremonially cleansed after being diagnosed with leprosy, the law prescribed this. He says, this shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought unto the priest, and of his sacrifice, one of the birds shall be killed over running water. It's the same Hebrew word equivalent to our Greek word in our text. In other words, the word is quite common. Living water denotes fountain or spring. And so, friend, when you read this text, you're to remember that that certainly the woman of Samaria, not thinking in spiritual terms as she is, is thinking more along these lines. She's in the land, by the way, not far away from Gerar, where Isaac's servants dug up that springing water, that living water. And so, friend, all for all of what we find in this text, we're supposed to see there a woman who is thinking very, very concretely, and very in very narrow terms about what a fountain or a spring is. But friend, obviously this is not how Christ is deploying the term. This term is also found right throughout the prophets. We even saw an example of that in Zechariah 14. Allow me just to give you another from Isaiah. I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. And they shall spring up as among the grass, as willows by the watercourses. And we could cite a whole host of other texts from the prophets of a like character. But all I need to remind you of is John 7, where there Christ directly equates the, the fountain of water that he's referring to, these living waters, to the spiritual graces that are poured upon his people. That is the fountain. Those are the living waters that Christ is referring to. The woman might be thinking of a spring, but here Christ is thinking of the Spirit. And what you notice, friend, as we've already alluded to, is the fact that he describes the Spirit in this way in the most savory and desirable of terms. This is a a description of the grace of God that, that awashes in the soul and so quenches thirst, and satisfies utterly. It's the most tantalizing way, friend, for you and I to be thinking about the soul-satisfying graces that are offered by Christ. What you see in this text then, friend, is that from Christ, believers do indeed receive satisfying grace. The character of this grace, we can go through all hosts of texts. Just allow me to take just Romans 8 one that's well known to us. What what do these waters look like? When we come to to the literal, referent here in the text, what what do these waters do? What does the gift of the Spirit do? Well, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. No, what he says there, there's a law working in the believer that, that delivers them from the dominion of sin. And so those who are wearied with the course of sin... So often, friend, are described as those who are in dry ground and a desert place. And here what you find in the text is Christ says, here 
is water to quench. But as you go throughout Romans 8, that's not all that the Spirit of God does. You recognize that time and again the, the Lord describes not only just the work of, of breaking sin's dominion in the life of the believer, but, but these spiritual graces come and even reinforce one's assurance of faith, comforting them with the spirit of adoption. And for all of the soul-comforting graces, all of those things that remind the believer that they are truly the children of God, all of those graces that are at work to lead the believer to resist temptation, to drive them more to the God who has redeemed them. Friend, all of those graces are in view in Christ describes living water. Because all of those, friend, truly satisfy the soul of the godly. And that is the point, friend. As you look at this text, Christ uses a metaphor here that, that is supposed to show us that the graces that God gives truly are satisfying to its recipients. Perhaps if you were with us just two weeks ago for our midweek, remember that the psalmist describes this very reality in the fourth psalm. He says, Upon my heart bestowed by thee more gladness I have found than they in them when corn and wine with them most abound. Note what the psalmist is saying. Uh, to, to, to really pull it in, into the terms of our own text this morning, he is saying that he has tasted of this fountain. And friend, even whenever he is faced with pinching affliction, and even when he compares what he faces with the prosperity of the wicked, he says that which has been given to his heart. Note that. It is that which has been applied to his heart at work in his inner life, is more satisfying to him than all the prosperity that the wicked know in this world. This is a truly soul-satisfying thing. And friend, what you and I are supposed to see here is that then this is most desirable. The woman of Samaria ought to have been driven had she understood what Christ was saying appropriately, she ought to have been driven to ask of Christ these waters. Friend, you and I ought to desire these graces more and more. In fact, you and I should make these things the things we desire most of all. The psalmist here again reminds us, as he does in Psalm 4, that, that friend, let all prosperity come to the wicked. Let them have universes at their disposal. Still, that which the believer has impressed upon their heart, those spiritual graces, are far greater, are far more desirable. And the one who possesses them possesses greater riches than all. Friend, if all of that's true, is it any wonder that throughout this altar you and I find time and time again the church pleading for quickening grace, for reviving that they would know the shining countenance of God. And because that is truly only that which slakes the thirst of those who are God's people. Only that is soul satisfying. And so friend, as we leave just this first point, the question is, do you see these things as being most desirable? If all of your worldly ambitions were tabled, all of your earthly dreams, howsoever good they might be in themselves, if all of them 
were denied. But God left you these. Friend, would that be enough for you? But more than that, would you account yourself most blessed? I want us to come then secondly, not only to the contents that he offers, but also the consequence, the various effects that this gift brings. In verse 14, Christ says that whosoever drinketh of this of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. Now literally the words are, he shall never go thirsty. And then he says, this water shall be in him a well of water springing up unto everlasting life. And the, other, and the sense of that is very simple. That the water, that, that these spiritual graces that are at light, that are at work in the believer's life, well friend, these things will be permanent. And, and note this, he says that in giving the water in the believer then is deposited something like a well. It's an important change in the metaphor. Christ is the one who gives the water. It is as though he is the fountain in the first case. But then he turns that metaphor around and says, and then once the believer has these things, it's as though there is a well, a fountain within him now. And then from that fountain he may draw. In this case, the idea is the drinker becomes the well. Now what do all of these things signify? Well, friends, certainly what they show us here, first of all, is that believers continually are sustained by this grace. In other words, those who have have received this living water, Christ describes them as those who continue to have its flow, who continue to have its benefits, and and continue to have their their, their thirst slaked. And friend, this is so very crucial. Because what you find here, friend, is is of course an answer to those who would say that that the true grace of God could at some point diminish and and entirely be exterminated in the life of one who once believed. No, friend, Christ knows nothing of that doctrine. No, those who truly have, have taken of this living water, they have it forever. It will always be with them. And and the sense, friend, that you and I have to get from this is, is that this is a text that urges us to see that the grace of God deposited in a believer will always be. It will always be. And there are several benefits that come to us through that. Quoting from Isaiah 58, we find this. He says, The Lord shall guide thee continually and satisfy thy soul in drought. And make fat thy bones, and thou shalt be like a watered garden, and like a spring of water, whose waters fail not. Note, it's a parallel to what Christ has said. In the first case, the prophet tells us that the the Lord will guide, and then will give you water in drought. But then he says this, and then he will be like a spring of water, and whose waters will not fail. Now friend, what are all of these metaphors teaching us? Friend, it's teaching us not only that God nourishes his people, sustains that work of grace within, but he also demonstrates in these texts that he satisfies. Friend, one could be sustained on stale water and moldy bread for a time, but surely it wouldn't satisfy. Friend, the way that God describes the perseverance of grace in the lives of his believers is not of a small kind of nourishment. 
It is of truly soul-satisfying grace. He will, not, he will not feed His people with such morsels. They won't, their, their thirst won't be quenched with drops. No, they will have springs of water within. He will pour abundantly upon them. Friend, what you have here is a high view of the grace that believers receive through Jesus Christ. That the graces that they receive are not small. That those inward workings of God's Spirit, they're not slight. And moreover, friend, what you find in this text is that these, these works satisfy souls. And so, a third consequent from this text also you need to recognize is, as I've already highlighted, Christ is not saying here that their thirst is extinguished. It's very important. The text literally reads, He will not go thirsty. And there's quite a difference between those two things. Friend, the sense of this text is is that while the believer will always desire these graces, he will never be in want. In other words, his desire is never diminished. It's only increased, as the Scriptures teach us. But what this text teaches us is that those desires always have a ready well. There's a fountain nearby. And so he will never go thirsty. To to change the metaphor, he will never be famished. Though he hungers... He will not hunger for long. Though he will still thirst after the living God, that thirst will be met. He will never be left without. In this way, friend, you you have an image certainly in the life of Samson. You remember after battling the Philistines, he walked away and and he halted. He was famished and, and he was near to die in his own estimation. And so he wondered, as as he goes to God in prayer, is it so that that after all of this fighting that I'll die of thirst? And you remember the Lord's response. He he carves out for him in Samson's own mouth something of of a well, as it were, to sustain him. Well, friend, the believer in this text, as Christ describes him, has more than what Samson received. You see, what the believer described as having here is that there is a well of living water. A well that satisfies not the flesh, but the immortal souls of believers. And that they have, friend, grace then. That is not small, and it doesn't come in fits and in starts, but it's ever-flowing and abundant. But I want us to close... This, this afternoon by looking at the character of this offer. So we've taken really these several texts thus far to see what Christ is offering the Samaritan woman. What, are, what is the substance that he's offering and what are the effects that he promises will come should she take it? But now I want us to look briefly at how he makes the offer. His manner, if you like. In order for us to do that, we need to go back to those verses that show us the woman's responses to Christ. Take verse 9. She says to him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me? Now friend, I want you to recognize that this is not a woman that you and I are supposed to see as 
as being genuinely curious here. As several learned commentators remind us, really the sense of that question in verse 9 is, oh, is it now that you need the help of a Samaritan? You, who, who, you a Jew, who, who would not think it worthy your time to, to spend any time with us, us lowly Samaritans, or are you now in the moment of your need looking to the help to the vessel of a Samaritan? Then come down to verse 11. After Christ really tenders his first offer to her, she responds saying, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with. Are you greater than our father Jacob, which gave us this well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? Well, friend, this is also scoffing. Know what she's saying. She's saying here, again, not knowing with whom she's speaking. You have nothing to draw with, so you've enlisted my service and my vessel. And you're telling me about drawing out this fountain, this spring. But you can't even draw from this well yourself. You require my vessel. Are you better than Jacob, who could dig a well and drink himself and also give to others? Then I want you to notice in verse 15, It closes with, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. And again, friend, I think sometimes we read this as a woman whose curiosity is piqued, whose whose appetite is, is, is urged or encouraged. That's not the case at all. As Calvin says in this text, at this moment she sets at naught all of his promises. This is scoffing. This is not a woman who is broken. And all of that's so surprising, friend, because at this moment, you and I have already seen that she's not only a Samaritan, she's an outcast among Samaritans. And not only is she an outcast among Samaritans, but she is a notoriously wicked woman. And we'll see that in the the verses to come. Furthermore, what you recognize here is that she scoffs at the Jews. She doesn't know Christ from any other Jew, but because He's a Jew. She meets him with such derision. And friend, what you and I are to see here is that this is a woman who is among heretics and is a zealous heretic herself. She thinks herself a Samaritan right. We shouldn't forget that. I suppose sometimes we read the Samaritans as though they were the poor, oppressed, and meek people that they were always looking to curry favor with the Jews. That's not the case at all. The Samaritans saw themselves as spiritually superior to the Jews. And you see this in the case of the woman. It is our father Jacob who gave us this well. You are the Jews who who have defected, who have apostatized. And so, friend, what you see here is an obstinate outcast, a heretic who is entrenched in her heresy, And moreover, friend, a woman who obviously sees herself self-righteous in the face of Jews. Moreover, friend, as you look at this text, all you have to do to see this kind of derision is to ask when did she ever give him a drink? It's not in the text at all. We have a lot of detail. We're even told at the end that she left her vessel, but we're never told that she gave him drink. Yet in the face of all of that, in the face of her obstinacy, her pride and her scoffing, Christ says in verse 10, 
thou wouldst asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Here you have a weary and a thirsting Christ. Here you have a Christ who, who has condescended so low as, as to engage and to carry on a conversation with a woman whom other Samaritans had already rejected. And yet at every point he's rebuffed by this woman. At every point he's scoffed at and insulted. And yet, friend, as he offers her this living water, he is a picture of patience and forbearance. He meets with all of her scoffs with silence and renews his offer of grace time and time again. Friend, what this shows us is that our Christ is a willing Christ to give grace even despite the many rebuffs he meets with sinners. The examples, friend, of this truth, that Christ is willing, though so often rebuffed by sinners. You see this in the case of the thief on the cross. In Mark's gospel, it's clear that at the beginning of the time on the cross, both of the thieves blasphemed. Both reviled Christ at the beginning. And yet at the end, friend, how willing was our crucified, our Christ who then faced the pains of the second death to tender to that one who had reviled him so, nothing less than eternal life. Or take, friend, the command that Christ gives to his disciples. They are to go and they are to preach the gospel through all the world, yes, but begin in Jerusalem with the very people who just weeks before had cried, crucify him, crucify him. His blood be on us and on our children. Go to them and offer them first the grace that I would tender. And friend, even the believers you see this, don't you? When the women leave the empty tomb, the command is to tell all of the disciples that Christ has been raised again. But, but you remember there's a special statement there. And Peter, tell Peter this good news. All of the other disciples are simply called disciples. But Peter is signaled out. The one who had despised him three times denied him. Yet he's singled out. It is Christ, though rebuffed by Peter by Jerusalem sinners, by the thief on the cross. He goes to them and he goes again and again, urging them to take hold of him and his gracious offer. And friend, you see that self-same thing in our text. The woman scoffs, but Christ continues. She rebuffs him again and he offers again. And, and friend, what you find here is a Christ who urges sinners, even in the midst of their malice, to comply with the gospel. Friend, as we leave this text, you and I should leave with thanksgiving that this is how the offer of the gospel comes to us. If Christ were not so patient, if he were not so forbearing, if he didn't fly away at the first rebuff or insult, where would any of us be? 
What you and I see in this text as we close is not only a picture of what he offers, but how he offers it. Friend, not only does he offer us the greatest of things, the richest of blessings, but he offers it with the utmost patience and forbearance. He offers it with the greatest determination. And friend, all of these things should only incite our desire and our hope. This is the living Christ, the Christ who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this is what he offered the woman. The outcast among outcasts, the obstinate heretic, the self-righteous, wicked woman. He offers her so patiently and time and time again, nothing less than that only that could satisfy an immortal soul. Friend, that is the same Christ who you and I encounter this morning. The same Christ who through his word offers you himself and offers you every spiritual grace. The exhortation from this text, friend, first of all, is that you and I must forsake every other well and every other cistern. If you're looking for peace, for joy, if you're looking even for holiness outside of Christ, friend, you have rejected the offers that are tended to us in this text. No, you and I, we need to leave aside, friend, all of those things and see that this is the one thing needful closing with Christ and taking only from him. Can you say with the psalmist, the friend, let every other earthly desire, every other, every other blessing temporal that the wicked might know. Can you say that even the greatest of the good things that you desire, if those things were removed, if all of those things were denied to you, but you had this, Friend, could you say that you would count yourself most rich, most blessed? In Jeremiah chapter 2, you remember that the prophet urges the self-same thing upon his congregation. God, through his prophet, says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Friend, the exhortation in that is the same from our text. To flee all of those things, friend, and find in Christ only that which truly satisfies. The second exhortation from this, friend, is that you and I should heed how Christ speaks of those graces. He speaks of them in in such a way to stir our appetites to drive us to desire these things above whatever else the world might offer. This is to be desired above all. And and friend, you and I, we need to be engaged in meditation. We need to be praying that God would stir up that kind of appetite in us. That friend, if, if you and I were given universes, but lacked these things, we would count ourselves most miserable. We are to stir ourselves up to desire these things. And then, friend, you and I, thirdly, we are exhorted in this text to be in that place, to be employed in those means that will convey these things to us with greater abundance. In Isaiah 12, there the prophet talks about the ordinances of the gospel being wells of salvation. 
Friend, the means of grace. This is how the Lord is pleased. These are the conduits that God is pleased to use to convey more and more the soul-satisfying graces in this text. So, friend, if those graces are to be desired above everything else, then certainly our attendance upon those means, our use of those means in private and in public, friend, those things must be of the highest priority in our day and our week. But fourthly and finally, friend, you and I are exhorted in this text to remember that the hand that offers these graces to sinners is a hand that is most willing to give. In fact, a hand more willing to give than you and I are to receive. This should lead us to close with Christ again and again. To go in faith, pleading that the Lord indeed would grant more and more what we find in this text. May we go to him then, this morning, and find that he still gives these living waters to unworthy sinners. Amen.